I am stoked to be joined by the one and only Ryan Nicodemus, my new friend. He is, if you don't know him, New York Times bestselling author. He is a Netflix star. He's a speaker. He's a small group mentor. And he's best known as co-founder of The Minimalists. You have The Minimalist Podcast. You have their two documentaries. Definitely check those out. But we're gonna we're gonna skip the throat clearing today and get right into some deeper questions because that's what I'm I'm all about is deeper questions and see if we can ask and ask Ryan some some questions maybe you haven't heard him talk about in in certain ways at least and uh, yeah get deep and have fun at the same time so welcome Ryan dude thanks so much for having me man this is uh this is an honor man thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's an honor as well. I've been listening. I mean, I started listening to the Min- the Minimalist podcast, I think, in 2016, 2017, after seeing the documentary. And I mean, I've been thinking about minimalism for, for, for longer than that, but really have received a lot of value um, in, in thinking about minimalism in, in more than just letting go of objects, but letting go of all sorts of different clutter. And and that's what I kind of want to start with, where one one way we have connected is talking about childhood trauma, childhood conditioning and, mm-hmm. and healing and ways to support people in their in that growth and and re- return, I would say, to the one's true self. Um, and so trauma, first of all, that's a widely defined word, right? And people mm-hmm. have often a charge or a certain connotation that we even me to this day, I mean, I've been thinking about this for years, that word can be heavy and it can, it can seem like it's only about severe, acute abuse and things like that. But I like to define it in a much wider way. And you can talk, you can call it, you know, just childhood conditioning or programming or adverse experience. Or I like uh, Miguel Ruiz talks about domestication. Like we get, we grow up in this, punishment reward paradigm um and and not really following our authentic desires but but pleasing authority figures pleasing teachers and parents and so forth um so yeah it's a topic that i I think we can actually expand the definition and there's different degrees of mild to severe and really what what it comes down to is just becoming aware of what happened to you growing up and how that's impacting you now and so i'd be curious for you to riff on that, but also like the, how that ties to minimalism, because again, typically think people think of minimalism as, okay, let's clean out my closet and let's throw away my stuff. I don't need great. That's a, that's a first step for most people. But what I love about your podcast lately, the past couple of years has been much more nuanced talking about different types of clutter, like emotional clutter, psychological clutter, relationship clutter, mental clutter, and and clinging to things, clinging to fears, like much more subtle types of conversations. Um, so yeah, I would love for you to riff on on sort of that relationship between minimalism and and childhood trauma. Yeah, man. Mm, so many directions to go with that. <clears throat> I think uh, I think you know minimalism came about for me because of my drama. And I didn't even realize it really until, you know, years later, kind of unpacking what trauma is. That word trauma is, um, you, like you said, it's kind of loaded and people use it a lot and they use it a lot for a reason. And, you know, I don't want to use it just for the sake of using a, vo- a word that's in vogue. I mean, yeah. for me, the trauma has to do with, um, you know, physical abuse as a kid. It has to do with growing up poor. It has to do with constantly being in a state of want. And it's not just material things and money. I mean, I I wanted safety. I wanted uh, someone I could rely on. I wanted someone to protect me. And um, I didn't get a lot of that growing up. And uh, I think my journey into the corporate world, chasing a bigger paycheck, climbing the corporate ladder, buying more stuff, buying a nicer house, going on vacations, trying to, you know, have all the, have all the trappings of a very successful life. 
I think that I reached towards that because of my trauma, this, this lack that I had that I felt very deeply and you get told by society and other things that, um, if you get all of those things, you're successful and success equals happiness. And I might agree with that. Like success maybe does equal happiness, but the problem is, is the way we define success. And so minimalism helped me redefine what that meant. And so with minimalism, I saw an opportunity for me to get out of debt. I saw an opportunity for me to get rid of the 60, 70, sometimes 80 hour work weeks and an opportunity for me to really uh, regain control of my money, which would help me regain control of my time. But getting into it 13 years later, it's like, man, minimalism, simplicity, living deliberately, it applies to so many different aspects of our life. And what I started to realize when the minimalists started to really take off and and get listeners, readers, viewers, whatever you want to call it, it's it's uh it, it was amazing to see how people were experiencing the same thing of regaining control of their lives in some way, shape, or form. And when people regain a sense of control, and I use the word control so loosely, right? We don't have control over a lot. I have control over the emotions uh, that are inside of me and how I react to them. Maybe not how they they are uh, uh, how they get stirred up, but certainly I have control over how I, I project those. I have control over um, you know most of my financial uh, expenditures. I mean, you know, there are some non negotiables: uh, water, heat, a roof over my head, food, things like that. But you know, other than those like necessities, um, I have con- I have control over a, a lot of those decisions. And when you regain a sense of control, balance, it's it's a very good feeling inside. And what I realize is that when people start to get that internal balance, they start to have this, uh, they have this lack of want, this lack of desire when their needs are met. And when someone's needs are met, it's so much easier to look at other people's needs. And that was kind of, you know, uh, Josh and I's, main goal with minimalism. It was really all about um, helping people realize that they probably don't need as much as they think to live a meaningful life. And by doing that, someone can take their idea of what a meaningful life is, and then they can start to project that out into the world. Now, does someone need to have everything taken care of to help other people? No, of course not. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples, multiple examples, many, many examples of people who will go out of their way to help others, even when their own needs aren't met. But there is something with having your needs met and it being easier, being clearer to see what you have to offer others. And when it comes to trauma, you know, I've also realized that we all have trauma at some level. And even if someone who grew up in a perfect, uh, perfect household, perfect parents, they still have had some sort of trauma because trauma is a funny thing. Something that happens to me could be very, very traumatic. But if it happens to you, Joel, it may not be traumatic at all. It's it's very perspectival and it all has to do with, uh, you know, nature and, and nurture and how someone's life has has grown up and how they process things. So thinking about how everyone has trauma, it's almost like people either have trauma that they don't realize, maybe people have trauma that they do realize and they don't know how to heal from it, or maybe someone is on that healing journey or has already healed from trauma. And if someone listening to this is saying, well, I don't have any trauma, okay, like I think that's probably an exception, but I'm not saying it's impossible. I promise you they know someone with trauma. And so for me, that is what has been really coming up um, over the last couple of few years with doing the podcast and everything. It's really about helping people process whatever their traumas are. And the reason why I'm so passionate about that is because, man, when I was able to unpack a lot of that and hold space for it and realize that a lot of those traumas is what made me who I am today, and I really like who I am today, um, I want to help other people feel that way as well. Absolutely. And it it comes full circle in terms of what you said at the beginning, where in retrospect, you see like going up the corporate ladder and and buying all the stuff is that was a a sort of 
response to your trauma. That was a, mm-hmm. a way to, to maybe numb. Um, and so then, you know, you start the minimalist and you, you, you're teaching people to let go of their stuff and get more balanced and get more calm. And, and then the way I see it is once you have that control over that, the higher level stuff, whether that's your stuff, your finances, then I think for many people, the deeper stuff can start coming to the surface mm-hmm. because, okay, you've, you've cleared out stuff from your house. That's just like all this debris that's completely getting in the way. You can't, you can't even begin to go deeper into your psyche. If you're just, you know, stomping through the trash, right. On the, yeah. the physical plane, on the physical plane. But when you clear that up, then there's almost this opportunity for the psychological to come up. You have the time and space. Um, and so then people can go, to that deeper level of exploration, like, wait, why in the first place did I turn towards shopping in order to get pleasure? <laughs> right. Yeah. And actually, I mean, you know, these things can be, can unfold in any order. It's not necessarily, this is the first step, second step, third step. Um, these things are symbiotically related, but mm-hmm. like the healing could come first and then you start clearing your stuff. But <clears throat> I think um, it's all often an opportunity of people to to go deeper, and then you realize what is it that you actually need and and actually desire and actually want, and not getting attached to the external. And there can be that exploration for why are you attached? What are these parts of you that are that are trying to turn to the external, the external validation of the external objects, etc., in order to get a need met? When, when in reality, that need really doesn't get, get met in a sustained way when you turn to those things. It reminds me of, uh, the trauma researcher Gabor Mate. He talked about having a shopping addiction himself, literally to buying classical music CDs. Mm. Like he was this doctor making a lot of money. So he had this disposable income and he would buy like thousands of dollars of classical music CDs and. Most people would hear classical music CDs as not something that's an addictive thing. Like that's, oh, that's a sophisticated, sophisticated uh, hobby you have there. But actually it was his relationship to the CDs and the, and this experience of the dopamine hit of shopping that he, he, he conveys as he was addicted. He would just get the thrill, Mm. the thrill of buying the latest thing and buying all these things. And so that's, he uses he uses that example as his own trauma response, but also to illustrate for people that the external is not the core problem, mm. right? Yeah. the The core problem is the pain inside. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we're we're all running away from pain, running towards pleasure, and we find those those uh, those pleasure points in different ways. You know, for me, like the pleasure points came about because of what I thought I wanted as a kid and like the problems I saw arise within my household. So money, you know, was always a problem and, you know, we didn't have, didn't have the resources to buy what we wanted and buying generic foods. And I just remember at one point I'm like, I just want to make enough money to where I can say yes to guacamole without worrying about it. And I can buy like the really nice paper towels, <laughs> not worry about <laughs> buying the cheap paper towels. But, you know, in all actuality, like those are just, those are definitely surface things. And when those surface things stop working, you have no choice but to look at the internal. And, you know, it's, it's crazy because like when I was in the corporate world, I turned to drugs and alcohol to like kind of numb those, those, uh, those uncomfortable feelings I had. And it's crazy because at first, all of those pursuits, money, corporate ladder, wh- whatever, it, it, it numbed those, those uncomfortable feelings. But when that wears off, it's like, now what? Now there's something wrong with me. So, you know, I turned to drugs and alcohol and that worked for a while too. And that stops working eventually as well. And, you know, 30 years old, I just kind of found myself at a point where I'm like, okay, there's some real work that has to be done. Like there's something I have to just change deep inside of me with what I'm pursuing in life to really figure out how I can be happy with who I am. And, you know, I use the word happy really loosely too, because I think that can be defined in so many different ways. 
but yeah, there is a, there is an internal desire that I wish I would have just skipped the, the years of my twenties. I wish I would have just skipped that decade and went straight to the work of figuring out what those pains were, where they come from and how to like really, how to really, uh, manage those, I guess, for the lack of a better word. And it's funny because when you reached out to me, Joel, you reached out to me about trauma and healing trauma. And I really thought that I had it under wraps. And the reason why I thought that is because anytime those negative feelings would come up, I had a really good mechanism. And I still do this sometimes with certain things, but you know, I'm working through it. But I have this really analytical mind that can talk myself out of these different feelings. So if I'm feeling like, oh man, I really want to get a Tesla, for example, um, I can look at that and say, hey, Ryan, that's your object A. Object A is the thing that we desire that we feel like if we would just get it, if we could just get our hands on it, if we could just possess it, then our life will be complete. And like when I was living in LA, I thought, I thought, man, a Tesla would really make my life complete. It drives by itself. It's a nice car. You know, it's, it's electric. It's good for the environment. All these things. But the problem with object A is that you you will always have something else replace object A once you get whatever that first object A is. So there's object A to uh, you know the <laughs> to, to the infinite power. And when I was able to kind of look at that, I could talk myself out of okay, great. You know, I want a Tesla. Great, I can uh, I, I can live with that desire. I can see it for what it is, and I can move on with my life. Dude, that is so much work, man. Because that's just one example of how I would talk myself out of all of these uh, different pain points I would have. And so when you reached out to me, man, and you were like, hey, I can really help you and others get rid of those pain points. Like that is what really kind of uh, got me interested in working with you, man. And I got to tell you, like the work I've been doing with you is freaking amazing. Awesome. I love it, man. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more in a in a few minutes about your experience with with what I've showed you with, um, and for people listening, um, basically just talking about the new business I'm building and helping people let go of, of deep rooted beliefs, uh, in their subconscious mind. That's a really solving problems as opposed to just managing them. Right. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about that in a few minutes, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, uh, cause here on the Joel Vine show, I'm my number one, one of my one of my core values with this is just to kind of let my curiosity lead the way here. And um, I'm curious about, I guess I'm first curious about given the sort of dysfunction in your childhood that you've, you've really talked quite openly about mm-hmm. and pretty, some severe stuff. And yet everyone who talks about you and who meets you is like, Brian is this jolly, generous, loving person. Of course, you've already done a lot of work on yourself to to likely evolve to that that next level but i'm i'm just kind of curious about what were you like as a kid and Mm. and and given the sort of the adversity growing up do you think this sort of generous spirit in you is something that you always maintained even through that or is that something that has come to light because you've done work on yourself. It's always been in there for sure. Meaning I've always had this deep compassion for people around me. Um, I don't ever remember not feeling that way. I think what happened as a kid though, is I didn't receive any of that or I didn't receive it often. And so I eventually developed an attitude of, well, it's just a selfish attitude, like a dog eat dog world. you know, it's like you, you take what you want. Otherwise someone else is going to take it from you. And I started to probably develop that at an early age. Um, I was, uh, I was a very overweight kid. So, you know, I got picked on a lot for being the fat kid. Um, I wasn't very good at sports. So, you know, I got made fun of for that. Uh, I don't know you know, what it, I don't know what it was about me, but, um, besides those things that I mentioned, but like, you know, I really was kind of picked on. I was kind of always like the one that when someone wanted to, uh, feel better, 
about themselves. They would make me feel bad about myself. So I kind of started to mirror what was thrown at me. And not that I was ever, you know, an, an evil person, but I certainly started to resemble a very selfish person. And it never felt right, but it it felt worse to put myself out there just for people to kind of make fun of me. So, you know, I, I don't know. I'm trying to unpack it here for you, but it's, it's Is like, it like as a teenager, you started maybe developing an edge to you and kind of projecting oh, some of that on that bullying types or that dog eat dog type psychology. Yeah. Like, especially in high school. Um, okay. There, you know what? There were a few people that I could be myself around and it felt really, really good to like be that generous person. But there was, I call him pretendedemus. And like, you know, there was this pretendedemus uh. in high school that just wanted to fit in and to fit in, you had to, you know, be the leader of the pack or you had to act like you were the leader of the pack or at least you were battling to be the leader of the pack. And I definitely was pretendedemus more than I was uh, Nicodemus. And yeah, I, I, uh, I think it just got to a point where once I started to, to heal from all of these, all of these, uh, or not even heal, but like start to notice all of these, uh, wounds that I had, it's like, I started to not care as much about what people thought and really wanted to be like the man that I knew that I was. And I'll tell you right now. What I'm realizing is, you know, I, a couple things, like first and foremost, like I am addicted to love and it's love from my wife. It's love from you, Joel. It's love from my audience. It's love from the person I meet at the grocery store. Like I am addicted to really connecting with people's love. And for as generous as I am, it's like there is still very much a, uh, an addiction that I'm fulfilling with that generosity now is, you know. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I mean, addiction can be described as many different ways. Um, I guess if I was going to be addicted to anything, I guess it would be being addicted to being generous. But, you know, I the reason why I think I am addicted to love like that is because, I, I again, I didn't get it as a child. And so now, like, I really want to give people, especially those, especially those who are, like, going through their wounds, and just realizing them, or again, not even knowing that they have them. It's like, I want to give them what I wish I had when I was a child. Like my wife and I, we really want to have a kid and I want to have a kid because it sounds like a great experience, but I really want to be the father to a child that I really wish I had. And that's a huge motivator for me. Yeah. I really resonate with that. Um, well, first I resonate with the pretend like false self. I wasn't like the leader of the pack type, but it was more like that um, just fitting in and being nice without being honest. Mm. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg calls that being a nice dead person. Mm, yeah. Um, and being that, that person everyone was, was liking, but maybe not respecting because not really showing up with that self-esteem and self-assertiveness. So I just want to, yeah, I just wanted to, to reflect that. I share that, that, that just that word pretend mm. resonates a lot for me historically with how I've showed up. And so it's, yeah, it's a similar journey there with developing that authentic self has been such a, a core part of my journey. And my, I say my twenties was about f figuring out who I am and my thirties has been about being who I am. Um, and now I want to, to share that with others so that they can, they can be who they are. And, and similarly with wanting to, to, to have children and wanting to raise children in the way that I didn't get, you know, mm -hmm. to really have a, that flourishing, secure, open, healthy environment atmosphere that encourages the blossoming of that child. That's like my, my deepest aspiration. And, um, what it's just sort of interesting to think about going like this nature versus nurture in terms of, are we, do we desire that because we had dysfunctional childhoods or, do we have a, is it in our like disposition coming into this world? We, we have this deeper compassion for humans and want, mm. want to share this. I would say it's, it's probably both. Cause I think I've, I've also always had that at my true, my true core. Like I found this old picture of myself 
from when I was like two or three years old. And it's like the most beautiful, like a little Joel ever. Like, whoa, this it's, I'm just in this very soft energy. Um, and, and I, uh, in this picture, I'm just kind of like looking off to the side in this deep, pensive, like soft, uh, reflective way. And it's like, wow, that's, that's so much of who I really am, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like the adversity as that child grew up that I experienced also, it creates more of that fire. Like, oh, I, I, I want to change. I want to change systems and paradigms for humans so that, so that children don't need to experience that. And ex- instead they can, they can get their needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, man, I think everybody at their core has that, has that love. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it just depends on, well, like, I don't want to like have, pretend I have the answers to everything. For me, it depended on, it being nurtured and it was not nurtured. And, you know, I, I think human beings in general, like the need for connection is, 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 is a desire fulfilled to survive. Right. I mean, the more people you have in your life, the more, com- more of a community you have, the easier it is to survive through thick and thin. So I think there's something um, that's, just naturally ingrained in most human beings with the need for connection. But then when you look at, you know, kids, uh, I haven't met one child that doesn't have a very active imagination. I haven't met one child who doesn't have the need for a hug from their mom or dad, you know? So I think, uh, I think we're all born with it and, you know, things happen that, that, uh, evolve that or don't evolve it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I do believe that as well, actually, that it's our true self is just like, I'll talk to clients sometimes and I'll, I'm working with their beliefs and, and I'll ask them, okay, imagine your infant self. Can you just visualize yourself as an adult watching your infant self in your mother's arms on the, the day of your birth? Is there any evidence that that infant is not enough just the way he is Hmm. it's like no (laughs) of course not that's pure wholeness right there yeah no one looks at the Uh, baby and was like you know what you need to change (laughs) about that baby that baby needs a boob job (laughs) (laughs) or nose job like it's it's crazy dude baby you're right dude like babies are perfect dude perfect yeah yeah so that that, that's this whole true like compassion itself and then it's it's Mm. the experiences um, it's essentially the experiences in the environments that, that then we create these fragments of ourselves and these walls and these guards and these fears because we're, we're trying to maintain safety and attachment and connection. And we, so we learn to create those, those false selves. We learn it's not, oh, maybe we might learn it's not safe to express my true feelings at home. So then you develop a belief like that. And this, I guess we can start talking about beliefs now more, but you develop a belief like that. And that's completely understandable because if you're in an environment where your parents can't because of their own trauma, they can't handle it. If you express your feelings, Mm -hmm. so then they punish you or they react to certain, they withdraw love. And then you just learn to just, okay, I'm just going to not do that. So I make sure I maintain attachment Um, but then we, we hold on to that, right? We, that becomes this psychological, emotional clutter as we become adults, that child part is still holding on to these types of fears and beliefs about self-expression and authenticity and all the things when it comes to actually being that whole self. And so then that's, the, the the journey of of self integration and and healing and so forth is to connect with those child parts. Yeah. Um. So I'm curious. Like, I want I want to talk to you about the belief work that you've experienced with me and and your take on that. But I'm also before we do that, I'm curious about what what are the maybe the top two or three, I guess modalities, if you will, or approaches to personal growth and personal development or healing or mm. that you, that you found value in, um, in your adult life 
Um, and I, I want to kind of set the stage for what, what experiences and modalities you have gained value mm-hmm. in. And then like, we can talk about how, what I've showed you has added to that perhaps. Oh man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about something I just have learned recently and it has to do with, uh, you know, there is an impulsive, there's an impulsive, uh, being in me that, you know, um, ostensibly I really want to just like live off of all those impulses. And sometimes, you know, I give myself permission to do that. Now I don't do anything like immoral or, you know, deceiving or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go off those impulses. And when I do, um, that, that version of me, I call Dusha Demas because he puts his needs first and he doesn't put anyone else first. And the only people that he includes and cares about are the ones that are enabling him to, to, uh, to fulfill those impulses, man. And so these pe- pretended demons, douche demons, there's depressed demons. I mean, there's all these different, different things that I have been in my 41 years. And because of the analytical mind, I compartmentalize them and I pretend that they're not me anymore. And I say, oh, that used to be me. The fact is, is those, all of those things are still me and I have to manage them on a daily basis. And so if you would have asked me, you know, a month ago, like, hey, man, do you love yourself? I'd be like, yeah, of course. And I do. I look in the mirror. I'm like, man, you're freaking awesome, man. You've come a long way. I'm so happy with where you're at. And I'm so proud of like the life that you've started to live. And, and I truly do love you. But when I see depressed Demas or douche Demas in the mirror, I don't like him very much. I see him and I'm like, hey, you know what, dude? I know you get the heck out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. And what I'm realizing is that to love is to to love another person is to see them for who they are and accept them flaws and all without the desire to change them. I mean, that's really what love is to me. So the same can be said about ourselves. If I look in the mirror and I don't accept all of those pieces of me without the desire to change, then do I truly love myself? And this really kind of messed me up a little bit because I'm like, maybe I don't love myself, but it's okay. I mean, I haven't learned how to like, love all those bits of me yet, but I have learned how to accept them for what they are. And now accepting them doesn't mean to allow them to run amok. Doesn't allow, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, that they can just take me over and make me do loveless things. It's, it doesn't have to do anything with that at all. It's not permission to be a jerk. It's permission for me to have compassion for them rather than, uh, pretend they're not there. And like, this has been huge for me because there is a deeper sense of love that I can feel myself getting towards. And so to do that, one of the practices, and this is just a piece of the work that I've kind of been doing, it's it's really identifying. I think about my 41 years of life and I think about all these different versions of me and I name them and I talk about when they first showed up in my life. I talk about the emotion that 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 I have when those when those versions of me show up. I talk about what that man does when he lets those versions take over. And it's really been it's just really been good work in truly getting to that deeper love that I know is there. I just haven't been able to fully embrace it yet, but I am starting to accept it. So yeah, man, I was just talking to a friend about this the other day who he's going through some rough stuff. And he's like, oh, man, this isn't me. I'm like, no, dude, it is you. And it's okay that it's you. And you have to accept that it's you. And learning how to accept yourself and manage, not manage, but again, it's like holding space for them because you can't really manage those. The more you try to push them away, the more they're going to try and pop back up. But there's something there that I am on the road right now towards like really finding a deeper level of understanding about myself and about these pieces of us that... Uh, from the past that we pretend aren't us anymore, but they are absolutely us, man. Yeah. It, it is. And it isn't right. Where it's yeah, all right. these parts of ourselves mm-hmm. are, are the facts of, of our being. And so having that compassion and acceptance for what is, is essential to, to develop that true self love. Um, and I find it valuable to, to recognize that, you know, those other versions or the, those other parts that have behaved in certain ways that are pretending, right. Or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. That's, that's also not our true self. 
So like seeing the right. psyche as from the internal family systems therapy, which I really value seeing we have our true self and then we have parts of ourself. Um, and oftentimes the parts historically they take over, they can take over the steering wheel, if you will, and kind of run the show. And actually I would say the, the majority of people right now on the planet are sort of a fragmented part of them is leading the show. Um, and they're not fully integrated with, with their true self. Um, but yeah, that, that process of accepting and naming the emotions, as you said, that's a huge, a huge tool to work with those parts. Um, and that's been certainly valuable for me over the years. And so I'm curious with the, let's talk about the belief work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess I haven't talked on the podcast yet about this to my audience. So, but basically why I reached out to Ryan was to share, to share this new approach to, to working with one's parts and, you know, negative thoughts, negative emotions that can be getting in the way. And this is what I've been building the past year and a half or so. And well, working on it with myself and then sharing with others, this approach where you can connect with a part of yourself Again, and there's a part from childhood, like, like I said earlier, maybe that has a belief, like it's not safe to express my emotions, that there's a specific belief as well as maybe other related beliefs, but there's, you work in this, in this new approach, you work with the part of you that has this fear or has this anxiety, et cetera, from that fragmented experience, fragmenting experience growing up. But you get more specific than just holding space for that part, more specific than just allowing that part's emotions to come up. It's more specific because we're getting to the belief level of what that part of you believes about himself or the world. Yeah. And so that belief can be, the, is, actually is the foundation for one's uncomfortable emotions. Essentially, so if you have a if you have a belief that dogs are dangerous, because you got bit by a dog, or repeatedly bit by a dog growing up, and you have a part of you that built up a belief, dogs are dangerous in order to stay safe, so that you could be aware. If you're, you you could very likely still be holding on to that as a thirty five year old, and so yeah. then you see a dog, and then a subconscious part of you has a physiological anxiety reaction, and so. The key there is the subconscious part. It's not you. You might consciously believe, oh, I love dogs. But there could still be this part of you that has never had the chance to actually dialogue with anybody so that it can let go of this belief. It's still holding on. It's still holding on. And again, this is where this tie into minimalism because it's like we're holding on. We're clinging to the belief, but that's getting in the way. Yeah. And if we can let go of the belief, then we start to, to be free. Um, and so the, the approach that I'm sharing with people is, is innovative way to communicate with that part. So the part actually gets the chance to recognize for himself, if you will, like seeing this part as like a separate consciousness, almost, um, allowing that part to recognize that the, the belief actually isn't, isn't true, or at least isn't as isn't always true and doesn't need to have this automatic response. Um, so that's kind of the high level for everyone listening. But um, so Ryan, I reached out to you to share, share this with you, show this to you and and find ways to collaborate, to share this with more people. And because I genuinely just want people to be free and want people to heal and all these things. And I think this is a really effective, fast and permanent way to do that. Mm. Maybe not the only way, maybe not. The only, maybe there's there's plenty of other ways that could complement, but I think it's it's definitely an innovation. So anyway, yeah. I, I I continue to my monologue here. Um, my question to you is: A, when I first kind of pitched this to you, the idea of letting go of a belief, like I'm not good enough, or it's not safe to express my emotions, or failure isn't safe, these types of core beliefs many people have, the idea of like clearing that entirely which is basically what happens almost like virtually a hundred percent of the time. Um, 
with this sort of approach, the belief is gone forever. Like Santa Claus isn't real anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, that I, I reached out, I sent a video to you and I was like, Hey, this is what, what's possible. And I'm like, I know it sounds at first glance, like, wait, how's this, how's this real? Um, what was your first reaction to the possibility of this tool and then how was, how have you, now that we've had, we've had the chance to do a few sessions, you've also had a session with my friend Jackson Sullivan, who's, mm-hmm. who's doing similar work and you've experienced this. How has your, what has your experience been and how is, how has your perspective shifted? Mm. Yeah. You know, when you first reached out, it was, it seemed like a very big promise. It seemed like a over promise under deliver thing, but you know, you didn't ask anything of me, Joel. You just asked my time. And you sent me a video that um, I very much felt connected to. I felt connected to your mission. And um, you didn't seem crazy. Because when I first read it, I was like, what's this guy smoking, you know? But uh, no, man, I, I really just thought, man, if this doesn't work, the worst thing that'll happen is I gave up an hour and a half of my time. And I'm totally willing to risk that, you know? And I remember our first session, we talked about this, I am not good enough belief. And what you really helped me unpack was that story that I tell myself. First off, all of our stories, like that's what creates our beliefs and the traumas add to the story. So, you know, the stories make us who we are. And I got to tell you first, man, like thinking of letting go when I was first thinking of letting go of I'm not good enough, like it's almost like I was letting go a piece of my story and whether it's a good piece or a bad piece, it's still a piece. And like, there's some resistance to like letting go of this Ryan Nicodemus that I have in my mind. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, we, we dove into it. And what I appreciate about the technique is what you do is you really help identify the feeling that comes up before the belief pops up because it's, true that like for me at least any of these self-limiting beliefs that i have there's an emotion that arises and then the story unfolds and your technique helped me to separate the two because before talking to you i didn't i didn't even realize that i just thought it was like i thought it was story then feeling and since being able to separate them it's like now i can look at that emotion And I get to decide the story I tell with it because it is and it isn't. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, Ryan, you didn't do this properly. The embarrassing, whatever negative emotion is, embarrassment in that case, the embarrassing feeling would lead me to be like, oh, you know what? I'm not good enough. And then I would just go in a downward spiral. But like I said, man, because of these mechanisms I have built up, I could catch myself in the downward spiral and talk myself out of it and move on, not let it ruin my day. But with your work, it's almost like I don't even go in the downward spiral anymore because I am very aware that I get to choose the story that I give with that emotion. So after we had our session, I remember I went to go play some Frisbee golf and there's some uh, two friends I play with and these guys are like so much better than me. They're so good. They've been playing for years, decades. And uh, every time I play with them, I start, I miss a shot. I'm not good enough. I miss another shot. I'm not good enough. And then I have like a really, really bad game of Frisbee golf because I am just so aware of how not good enough I am. And when I went to play that evening, I remember the first shot that I went to go throw. And the feeling came up. It was really the embarrassing feeling of like missing this really easy shot. And when that feeling came up, instead of me saying I'm not good enough, I'm like, oh, here's that feeling. Like, what are you going to tell yourself right now? And it's like, oh, you know what? These guys have been playing a lot longer than me. They've been practicing a lot. And you too, Ryan, if you practice enough, you will be as good as them one day. So maybe you're not good enough right now, but that's okay. No one's expecting you to be a professional. you know, at that point playing less than a year, I think I just hit the year mark. And to allow myself to see something for what it is rather than assuming the worst, to allow myself to 
very much um, be present with this this feeling of maybe I'm I'm gonna miss this shot and the embarrassment of missing it. It just completely changed how I tell my story with these emotions. And the more that I have practiced this, the less and less the emotions come up for sure. And um, like for that, I am I am eternally grateful, man. And that shot totally made it. I got like a, you know, some high fives and some fist bumps because it was a great freaking shot that I made. And um, yeah, man, I shot yesterday. Um, I, I tied, I tied for the, my best score on the course, but it's like, um, you know, this isn't my pitch to Frisbee golfers to uh, use your services to, uh, to become better Frisbee golfers. But I will say that the way that you are able to help someone go into the emotion and not just like to recognize the emotion, but to really help what you've helped me see is where the emotion comes from and where I first felt it. And then where I felt it after that. And then every time that emotion happens and the story unfolds, it's like the story just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And what you've helped me do is to make that story weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it does not come up hardly at all anymore. And we've done this with so many different beliefs, but, um, that, oh man, you know how exhausting it is to talk to myself and analyze every negative emotion. I mean, it is so exhausting, dude. It uses a lot of mental strength. That's that's what I've seen from you, man, is like, that's been an asset for you is to learn to manage the emotions. And you have had all these tools and approaches and mindsets and this is common in a lot of personal development. Like you, you read this self-help book and you, you think about this reframe and okay, now we're going to, yeah. you know, there's how to, to work with these emotions and mm-hmm. shift your emotions and now go do some jumping jacks and then you'll feel better. And it's like, great. All that stuff has that value and validity. Yeah. Um, but what, what can we can do with this tool is to get to the root so that we, we can actually reduce and shave down these emotions because we're, because we're reducing these belief clusters, I would say. So just to give people a little bit more clarity about the mechanisms here. Um, like I would say you, you miss that, you miss that Frisbee golf shot. And the first time you did that before you cleared, I'm not good enough. You had Mm. emotions and I would say the emotions are coming from a whole myriad of beliefs, a whole myriad of belief structures. Just like we talked about dogs are dangerous. If you have that belief, you, you might have that anxious, anxious response. Mm -hmm. Um, but you could also have other sort of other sorts of beliefs. You could have just, I'm not safe is a belief. So then when you see a dog that you have, extra emotions because you have a separate belief that I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. So my point is that we have these clusters. We have oftentimes many people have clusters of beliefs that are contributing to this, the package of the recipe of emotions of involuntary emotions. Right? So I would say when you, the first time or when you, when you miss the, the Frisbee golf shot before you had worked with, I'm not good enough with me. I would say that you, I'm guessing you had stronger overall emotional response. Now, after I'm not good enough, we let go. You still had emotions because there's Mm -hmm. other beliefs there. There's other beliefs about, you know, comparing yourself to others or success or whatever. We haven't even explored yet, perhaps. But what it sounds like is you had a reduction in the severity of emotion and you had more clarity because you didn't have that particular root of I'm not good enough, like automatically hmm. transpiring and spiraling you down. But it was like, oh, wait, that's not true. So, oh, I can see a little bit more clearly what actually is happening. What yeah. happened is the Frisbee, the disc like dropped over here and didn't drop over there. Uh, and my friends have certain facial expressions on or what, but like you, you realize that the meaning about what happened is up to you more and more. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Like when these negative emotions pop up, we want to justify them, man. You know, it's like, even if it's a negative emotion. So, you know, I'm just a anxious person. I like, it arises within me for no reason. 
and I will start to look for things to be anxious over. Because if I'm feeling anxious, there must be something in my life that I have to feel anxious over. And I'm just not able to pinpoint it right now. So I'm going to sit here and like waste my mental capacity trying to figure out what it is, that thing that I'm really stressing out over. And, you know, sometimes an emotion is just an emotion, man. And like now when I feel anxiety, it's like I might start to go look for stuff. And then I'm like, nothing really on the surface that's popping up. So I'm not going to sit here and beat myself up over it. And now instead of, you know, trying to look for the reason to justify my emotions, it's like, uh, over my anxiety specifically, it's like I can sit there and take some breaths and, you know, just do a little bit of relaxation work and really um, take the edge off of that. It doesn't go away. But um, because of the work that we've been doing, I've realized that like, there is no, Sometimes there is no reason for the negative emotions that pop up. It could be a residual of something. It could just be an imbalance that I have that day, maybe too much coffee, whatever it is. And you would say the emotions have, sorry to interrupt, but you would say the emotions are less oh, 100%. severe overall? Oh, yeah. Well, it's less severe because, you know, because the, the emotions are like the negative emotions are are still there as far as like embarrassment or anxiety or fear or doubt or worry, like all of those things still pop up from time to time because there's still things happening in my life that will trigger those emotions. And I think because of how those emotions have protected me growing up, they're still programming in me. There's, that, still, there's still beliefs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to, 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 to an extent. But what's nice is like the emotions are not nearly as sharp. So let's say my anxiety is a 10, like it used to be a 10, right? Then now my anxiety, it'll, it always started out as a one or a two. And then I would, I would fester until I would make it a 10. Sometimes it comes mm-hmm. on as a 10, but, or it would come on as a 10, but like, I haven't had anxiety come on as a 10, you know, since talking to you. And if I do get like maybe a four or five level, uh, of an anxious feeling, it's like, I can very quickly hold space for it and drop it pretty quickly because I'm not there to, to, to more control because uh, yeah, it not, hasn't spiraled as much and you're more yeah, and able to to work with it yeah and i'm not affirming it i'm not giving it i'm not giving it permission to grow like i'm basically looking at it and being like hey nice to see you what are you doing like what do you need like is there anything you actually need right now okay no all right see you later you know it's like yeah the, yeah 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 that's what i that's that matches up with my experience with how this 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 works when we work with beliefs um mm-hmm. So there's a shaving down effect. So we worked together at what, two, three sessions. You worked with Jackson once. Yeah. So you've done, I don't know, six or seven beliefs or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more sessions, like, I feel like you mentioned earlier, you're an anxious person. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no say- reason there's, I don't want to say I'm an anxious person because language is very – thank you for calling me out on that. Anxiety okay. <laughs> anxiety arises within me for various different reasons in my life. It's, sometimes okay. there's no reason at all. <laughs> well, I would say there is a reason. Mm. I would say there's always a reason. Mm. And I would say the reason for everyone's anxiety is is 95% – belief structures that were formed growing up Mm. and that's getting stimulated, stimulated. So like for me, just speak for myself with my experience with this, with this approach to to growth at this point, I've, I've cleared probably close to 600 beliefs. And now when I first started doing it, kind of got the, those big, those biggest, like the first, 12, 15 sessions that I did, definitely you saw, you saw that tangible shift because we're getting the biggest ones. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I can't trust myself. I can't do it. I'm not capable. I'm not valuable. Uh, it's not safe. To, uh, I had, it's, it's, it's not okay to relax. That was a huge one. Mm-hmm. Uh, my needs don't matter. Just like so many beliefs, again, everyone's different. Everyone has has different beliefs. Everyone has different um, strength of those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, 
my point is that I saw a drastic reduction over 12, 15 sessions and probably clearing like 50 beliefs hmm. in the first few months there. And that's what I've seen. That's what I've seen with the people I've worked with. It's like, we can have huge pattern reductions. Like the one, like one belief, if we clear, I'm not good enough for, for anybody in my experience working with, yeah, like dozens of people, I'm not good enough is, is the most common one. And that can have a huge shift. Like you've seen that shift, but again, yeah. there's other beliefs, right? Sure. Yeah. And so that one belief I think is life changing. People like just clearing that one. That's a like huge. <laughs> and, um, and it's, it's more life changing for some people and they have a super strong, like 10 out of 10 severity of strength mm -hmm. of that. Like, but there's other beliefs. So like I've continued to, after those first few months, I've just continued to go back and I figure out what beliefs I have. And I've, I've gone hundreds, hundreds of beliefs. And I keep finding, I keep opening up more and more. It's my point. Like I did a whole, yeah. a whole period of time. I was just clearing money beliefs, beliefs that, um, I don't have enough money. I'll never have enough money. Um, making money is hard. Um, asking for money is evil, like random, like different, not random, but like different sort of language and concepts that are triggering the, the emotions. Yeah. So that's what I like to highlight for people is that there's basically, we develop these concepts because we create meaning as children when we have an adverse experience. Hmm. And we can create meaning in all stories and beliefs and meaning in all sorts of different ways that can create this whole cluster of beliefs about money. Beliefs about women is a big one for me that I've cleared different sort of spellings, different concepts about women that's changed my, that's changed my life that I've now no longer have physiological reactions when I'm speaking to a woman, a woman in the same way because I've cleared I had a belief women don't care about my needs. Hmm. And that's just one of like probably 20 beliefs I've cleared about women. So there's like these different categories and clusters that the more we keep shape, uh, clearing beliefs and we keep like taking bites from that elephant, if you will, mm -hmm. the more the entire pattern of like anxiety about money, anxiety about uh, women, anxiety about um, Frisbee golf, right? Like, that can be shaved down over time. So like, that's just wanted to like share with the audience, like my experience with it, um, just doing it for hundreds of beliefs. Yeah, no, I mean, to your point, it's like, no, I look forward to, you know, not just being your friend, but like, you know, doing more of this work with you. Cause certainly, yeah. certainly there are other aspects that, um, subconsciously I'm just holding on to that. Maybe I don't realize, I mean, I'm totally, you know, open and, and aware that that's a possibility, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think often in our culture, we get accustomed to, we normalize like, oh yeah, we're just going to have these loud inner critics or I'm going to have negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's possible to just, it's, it's, it's theoretically possible to not, not never have a negative emotion again. Like we're never ha like, we're not trying to turn people into robots here. Like, <laughs> it's no. like you're going to be a human. Um, you, that's why I say it's, it's not, it's, it's 95% about our childhood and maybe 5% mm -hmm. about what's actually happening or, yeah. but, but I, what matters most is recognizing the mechanism here of like, like you said earlier, Ryan, you have the choice of how you, what story you choose to tell. Yeah. And so these beliefs are in, they're in their, our subconscious mind and there's these automatic responses mm. and we have these automatic feelings because we have the automatic belief. Yeah. But when we start clearing that out, then you have more clarity and you can start to rec you can start to use this tool. And this is for people listening. Like if you just want one takeaway, it's like, start getting conscious of what story you're telling in the moment. Ooh, and you yeah, can start using what, what matters is recognizing that you are creating meaning about your experience that is, is triggering the feelings. Yeah. So you can start applying that in the moment. You, you, um, you, you tripped over your shoelace walking down the street. Is there actually any meaning to that, that event? Right. If you just, if you choose no meaning, you won't have any feelings. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, sometimes things just happen and it's okay. It's interesting too, man. Cause like, we're talking about the negative emotions, but there's something also with like the positive emotions in the sense of, 
being addicted to those dopamine hits. And there's nothing wrong with negative or positive emotions, but I think about the Sedona method, and we've talked about this before, Joel. The Sedona method is all about releasing, um, you know, different emotions, and it's a great method. It's a great book. But they get into, like, you want to do this. You want to practice doing this for the for the negative, but also the positive emotions, which never – well, I shouldn't say never, but, like, it, it didn't make sense to me for a long time. And it wasn't until – uh, I just had this moment. I couldn't even tell you the story behind it. I just remember having a moment of peace, like true peace. And the peace had nothing to do with dopamine and it had nothing to do with avoiding negative things. It had everything to do with like truly just being in the moment. And it was then I was like, oh, like this feeling of peace is much more peaceful than elation, than, you know, eph- ephemeral hits of whatever. Um, I still like good feelings. Don't get me wrong. And I still hate the bad feelings. Don't get me wrong. But it's just funny because we just talked about the the negative stuff, but it's almost like the work that you and I will continue to do with each other. Like I want to dig into even like some of these positive emotions and see, you know, kind of what's behind all that, you know? Well, it's almost like what's, what's behind the addicted to love thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a positive emotions there, but could there be, could there be sort of excess Right. Get back to minimalism. Like those are excess positive emotion yeah. in the sense that there's like, um, you're seeking some sort of, maybe there's, it's not black or white, but maybe there could be some sort of external validation type thing that gets you these positive feelings mm. when you are social in a certain way or you are whatever. Yeah. Because you're seeking out this love because you didn't get as a child. Like, well, what are the beliefs specifically around that? So then, so then the more you let go of these involuntary beliefs about how to get love or whatever it is, we haven't even explored yet. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people have beliefs like the way to get love is to get approval. The way to get love is I I test those out. It's it's an often very core um, sort of um, stem to a belief. The way to get love is, and I'll explore that with people. And then we find these strategies we developed um, early on. So like, it's all about being free though. It's like, it's not like we're trying to say the way you, you befriend people and you give gift to people and you show love to people is pure addiction and just something we want to let go of completely. Mm-hmm. No, it's just, we want to let go of any of these automatic trauma responses that are just based on insecure attachment or whatever. And rather just yeah. Have that love becoming tr- completely from the from the true self, dude. I want to love and I want to feel love. I don't want to need it though. You know, like that's where it's, that's when I talk about the yeah. addiction. It is the need for love. Yep. And I look in the mirror and I say, well, it's okay to need love and it's okay to need to give love, but it is okay. Like there's nothing wrong with any of this N, stuff. Capital N need. Like I think we have yeah. a need for love, but then like sure. is there is there a clinging to love? Maybe that's another yeah, word. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it's the clinging part. Yeah. And again, it's like, I can justify clinging to love, you know, and, uh, intellectually I can realize how ridiculous that is, but emotionally, man, buddy, I sure do love, love. Let me tell you. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Like, um, but the, the love is like our natural state, right? Getting back to the infant Mm -hmm. and we want, we desire automatically to be loving and to love, uh, to, to receive love Mm -hmm. and to give love basically. Um, and if we have any, if we have any fragmented parts of us because we grew up and we didn't get unconditional love, which basically this is the case for almost everybody. Like the idea of unconditional love is what we needed growing up that no matter what you are loved, but we had this punishment reward oftentimes paradigm. So we, we lose, we lost love and then we became anxious perhaps, um, because we weren't getting yeah. the, the love that we actually needed. And so then we develop these strategies as a, we keep these strategies rather as, as adults. And then, then there's that, that unhealthy sense of, of, of that love addiction, whatever you want to call it. But if we just clear that, we get all the good stuff. We keep all the good stuff and just let go of the actual clutter, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I love you, man. Thanks so much for doing this, dude. Like, I'm so glad to have this conversation. <laughs> I've never had a conversation 
like this before, man. And uh, yeah, just being able to be on this podcast with you, dude, and express all that, even with my my changing lighting, I uh, I'm so grateful to be able to do this, man. Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for you, man. And in many many ways, many layers to that. Um, mm. Really grateful for your openness to even just watching the video I sent you and 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 being willing to take a chance and connect and and be curious about this and your time and your your desire or shared desire for to build to to share this with more people to share just opportunities for people to heal that's the, really what it comes down to um because we both see how like trauma is at the core of almost everything. Yeah. So I'm just grateful for your, your openness to that. And yeah, grateful for the, all the, uh, the value you've created with the minimalists and, and decluttering my, my life <laughs> in many ways, many different, um, elements to that. So yeah. Yeah. What else do you want to share with people? Oh man. Um, I, you know, people can go to RyanNicodemus.com if they want to check me out. I mean, that 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 is just a landing page. I mean, there's an email list there that um, I send out a monthly mentoring message. I'm having a lot of fun with that. Really getting, uh, oh, just some some thoughts out on my own and just really building a nice uh, intimate community over there who uh, who are all searching for the same thing I am, man, which is, you know, how to, how to live a more meaningful life, man. So you can just go over, anyone can go over there and check it out. I love it, man. RyanNicodemus.com. And also, yeah, if, if you haven't come across the minimalists, um, check out the YouTube channel and the, their first documentary is now up there for free, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know what, dude, I'm glad you brought that up. That is minimalism might be my Mount Rushmore, meaning it might be the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but yes, it's up for free. And, uh, if you want to see the best work that I've ever done with, uh, uh, my business partner, Josh Milburn, uh, us being the minimalists, like that is definitely something to check out, man. Beautiful stuff. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And, um, I'm sure we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely, man. Thanks, dude.